This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, we celebrate Emma Higgins, Canadian director who's nominated for a Juno for this year's Best Music Video. She chats about that, the art behind music videos, and creating in general. Pretty cool conversation. Also, Greg Fish tells us that we as humans might be merging with machines and might not have much of a choice in the matter. So we chat about that. Plus, in case you missed it with Ryan O'Donnell. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Ryan O'Donnell. Oh, dear. Cheeky. Uh, This is going to be a very PG uh, edition of In Case You Missed It because, pardon me as I nerd out, but it's on something not, it's on a real thing, okay? It's on history. I love history so much. I love reading about it, studying it. Um, you know, for a long time, it was all World War II and World War One, but now I read a lot of medieval and Japanese history. But one thing that's really cool, for me at least, is I remember the one historical event that started all of it for me. The one thing that I read about it as a kid that jump-started my passion for learning about history. And the cool thing is that it's a Canadian piece of history. It is the doomed expedition of Sir John Franklin. So, if you are unaware of this story, Sir John Franklin was in charge of an expedition through the Arctic from the British in 1845. It did not go very well. They got trapped in the ice and they were stuck there for years, eventually leaving the boats behind. All of the crew members died and we are still discovering more and more about this ship and this failed expedition hundreds of years later. And the most amazing thing happened this week. For the first time ever, Canadian researchers used a descendant's DNA to identify the remains of one of the sailors that was on that expedition. It is so cool. Eric Sorensen, he's got more on how they did it, which is wild, and what they learned. It is one of the enduring sagas of the Arctic, the unimaginable ordeal for the 130 crew members of the Franklin expedition. The HMS Erebus was discovered underwater just seven years ago, and HMS Terror two years later. But the remains of crew members had been found over many decades by the Inuit, and later came scientists. This is a story of human endeavor. Douglas Stenton is an anthropologist whose team set out to find who these men were and what they did. The DNA analysis and these sorts of things provide a new lens in a sense, for us to uh, try and understand more about what happened. It was an expedition through the Northwest Passage in search of the Pacific. The two ships, Terror and Erebus, made it as far as King William Island and became stuck in ice in 1846. The ships were found just a few years ago, much further south. But in 1848, after two winters and still icebound, the crew headed out on foot. Remains were discovered along the coast of the island. Some made it to the mainland. The remains at Erebus Bay would be a breakthrough. Stenton's team gathered samples from 27 crew members, then DNA tests from 17 modern descendants. They got one match. This is the skull of Warrant Officer John Gregory and a conception of what he looked like in life. And this is Jonathan Gregory, a descendant in South Africa who sent his DNA sample to Canada, then heard back just last month. We have a positive DNA match, and I literally had to hold on to my seat. You know, it was... It was surreal. It was, it was absolutely phenomenal. Just as delighted scientists at the DNA lab in Thunder Bay. Definitely felt good that we, we had actually made a match after all this time. It's just a small piece of information to the big mystery surrounding what happened. There is much that remains a mystery around those fateful years in the Arctic. But one family now knows that a direct relative survived for three years in the Arctic. And they know that... Uh... Uh, he didn't die alone. There were, there were the remains of two other men found at this site. To be a Gregory, to be Jonathan Gregory linked to John Gregory, it's an important day for our family. Gregory says it brings his family closer to their ancestors. Scientists hope it's just the first DNA match, that they'll find other relatives and learn more about Franklin's men and what they endured more than 170 years ago. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. That's cool. Science rules. I remember vividly, I was in grade 
two, no, it was grade three. And I had this textbook and that was when I saw the first pictures of the wreck and the bodies that were almost perfectly preserved because it was in the Arctic. I was like, wait, this happened in Canada? And I read through, read through, read through it. And every day I would open that textbook and read more about it. And so the fact that I'm now 24 and new stuff is happening here is amazing. And that's one of the coolest pieces about this story is that it is still a mystery. We learn more about it as the time goes on, but we still don't know all the facts. And it's really amazing that we got to learn a little bit more. It's cool stuff. And the fact mm-hmm. that they can connect it to somebody and that's like, oh, it's Uncle Bob. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah, exactly. And here's a really, really weird piece of fact about the Franklin Expedition. So in 1852, a man whose real name was Edward Belcher was given command of a group of ships to go find the lost expedition. But they got stuck in the ice One of those ships was called HMS Resolute. That ship was found and recovered by an American whaler who then gave it back to the British. And then the British used the wood from the ship to make desks. One of them is called the Resolute Desk, and it sits inside the White House. No way. Mm -hmm. There are crazy connections all around the world because of this expedition. So, so cool that we got to learn a little bit more uh, about it. And hopefully, maybe next year we'll have even more neat little info. Now, let's talk about nerdy things that are actually nerdy. <laughs> Get the button ready. Nerd! There it is. Okay, so earlier this week, the first trailer for a movie that's going to be so bad but probably really amazing at the same time, dropped on Monday. Welcome back, Eddie Brock. It's been a long time. Miss you so much. Soon come chaos. The chocolate delivery hasn't arrived yet. No! We had a deal. What's gonna happen? You gonna stop protecting me? I am happy to eat, Mrs. Chen! No, no, you cannot eat, Mrs. Chen. What? Nothing. Tom Hardy is back as Eddie Brock, a.k.a. Venom. (laughs) Yes, Venom 2 has its first trailer. Uh, Venom is the giant uh, evil... uh, monstrosity version of spider-man uh the first movie came out in i think 2018 and it was really bad but i loved every minute of it like it was so stupid and it felt like i was watching daredevil like the really bad ben affleck comic book movie but Mm -hmm. now it was very strange and it seems that they're going for the same vibe for the sequel venom let there be carnage Now, the only reason why I'm really excited about this is I think Carnage is one of the coolest superhero villains you've probably never heard about. Imagine Spider-Man, a guy who looks like Spider-Man, except he's a serial killer. And then he has a giant alien goo attached to him and his body can turn into like weapons and knives. And in the comics, it took Venom and Spider-Man teaming up to take him down. So this movie is going to be crazy. And Woody Harrelson is playing Carnage. So... I think he's going to have fun with it. I think it's going to be a really terrible movie and it's probably going to be way too much and the CGI is probably going to be bad. But honestly, Tom Hardy just dives into the role and stays in it and it it makes it watchable. So it's coming out later this year, hopefully. Fingers crossed. But there you go. There's a movie that you should probably watch, maybe not watch twice. We'll find out. Wow. (laughs) Should watch. Mm. (laughs) That's one of those ones where I'm going to say, hey, Ryan, why don't you watch that and let me know how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Don't worry. I'll keep you posted. You might need a beer or two to get through that one. Now, it's time for a good old gotcha moment, courtesy of Twitter. It's the tweet of the day. 
particular clip was brought to my attention on Twitter this week, and it is incredibly satisfying. New York Times bestselling author David Litt, who was also one of Obama's speechwriters, joined the far, very conservative news organization Newsmax for an interview. Hmm. Newsmax is one of those sites and news organizations that during the presidential election ran a lot of stories about voter fraud, very much keeping the idea that the election was a fraud at the forefront of its listeners and watchers' minds. And they kind of, you know, got away with it. It's kind of just happened and they're moving on. And (laughs) David Litt seems to have not forgotten about that. So you may remember earlier in the week on or last week, rather, Elon Musk guest hosted as the uh, host of Saturday Night Live and did a really weird job. He was kind of awkward. The skits weren't amazing. And he tanked Dogecoin and which is a online uh, Bitcoin. Uh, So David Litt, who's an expert in this, was asked to come on and chat about why that went wrong. But David got a little upset when at the beginning of the interview, the anchor made it seem like Donald Trump was the only reason Saturday Night Live was ever good in the first place. And David goes on a little bit of a tear here. And it's kind of amazing. So let, let's get the clip. Um, I did not watch Saturday Night Live. I watched the clips. The show's on too late, quite frankly. I don't think it's that funny anymore. Um, what do you think of Elon Musk's performance? This is the first time since 2015 we've had a non-athlete, non-entertainer on the show, the last person to do that and do well with great ratings. Our former president, Donald Trump. Well, Rob, it's a great question. I mean, what happened on SNL this weekend was that people made stuff up and then said it on television like it's true. And that actually happens pretty frequently in American TV. For example, in 2020, Dominion Voting Systems sued Newsmax over its false claims about election fraud. Newsmax was lying to its own viewers, and Newsmax had to settle that lawsuit. So um, actually, I just need to check in. Are you still telling that lie, or are you telling new lies? Wow. So just to be clear, he, he said all of that on Newsmax. Live, in the morning. And... Like, can you imagine, Shane, if you were interviewing someone and that's how it started? First question. Hmm. That'd be fun. <laughs> it would be. It would be fun. Now, I actually have to give the Newsmax credit uh, anchor credit, which is not a sentence I enjoy saying. He took that really well. He said, "Okay, so you're catching us off guard. Look, if you want to have a conversation about anything, we can have that conversation. But right now, I wanted to talk about SNL, but we'll catch you next time. The guy actually kept his cool and didn't come at him, which is, I was very surprised. Did it very professionally. But I got to give David credit. He told him what for. I mean, that's the thing, right? Is if you get away with spouting lies, you kind of have, somebody's got to hold you accountable. So the only way that David saw the way to do it is to do it live in front of their audience. And that must've been a real slap in the face there. Well, it Uh, takes courage. The reality is, is that he's never going to get invited back. Nope. And I mean, so that's the catch 22, right? Is that if you are the kind of person that consults to, you know, media, Strike that one off the old resume list because it's not like they're going to bring you in. Nope, not at all. So uh, an, an interesting gotcha moment, which I don't love. Gotcha journalism is terrible, but in moderation, moments like that do bring a smile to my face. Well, they. I mean, it's important um, if you believe that. And in this particular case, I mean, it was about facts. It was about a lawsuit. It was about settling a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And he quoted those those facts, and and that's the way it unfolded. He took advantage of the opportunity and did it. So I don't know if it's the best way to go about things, but you know, um, it takes a lot of nerve to it takes an awful lot of nerve to get into that and to do that. And that yeah. part is that's pretty cool. This is the Shift Podcast. One of the cool things that I've gone through during the pandemic, I think, is finding my love for music again. After 20 years of working in radio, 
music kind of becomes this tool that you use. It's an inventory. And you have the inventory. You don't have the inventory. You do the work. You meet the singers. You do the thing. And you get it done. And I think that after I've been able to relax a little bit and uh, do less music radio, less music in business, I kind of like songs again. Like I have a new love affair for a Hall & Oates that I could, I would never, I never thought I would have. Now, what about all the people that make these cool videos? What about all these people that create from the song? We've had on The Shift many, many times how to create the songs and who creates the songs and what kind of writing things they come from, the stories that are behind it all. Well, there's uh, this Canadian human named Emma Higgins. And Emma creates video stuff. That sounds incredibly not technical, but I mean that for a reason. Uh, Emma has a long history of creating uh, some pretty awesome music videos, award-winning type stuff, and has been nominated for 2021 Juno Award for Music Video of the Year, working with Jesse Reyes. Uh, Jesse Reyes is no uh, small fish in this pond of music anymore. Emma, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having Uh, me. Thank you. You're in Vancouver, and I didn't mean to sound dismissive when I say video stuffs, but really, it's... It's kind of what you do, all things visual. Yeah, video stuff is pretty accurate, especially nowadays with the ever-growing way that music videos and you know lyric videos and Instagram content videos and TikToks are growing that surround music and singles for artists. Yeah, competition everywhere, all the time, everywhere you go, Emma. Everyone's coming for your job. Yeah, that's okay. I'm I'm not too concerned. There's a lot of content out there that needs to be created. And, you know, everyone's got something different to say and bring to it. How cool is it to be nominated for the Juno? It's amazing. It's actually my second time. I was nominated in 2018. Um, I didn't win. I lost to Grimes, which is a very, very fine uh, person to lose to. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a big deal because I didn't realize until the previous nomination how big of a deal the Juno's are uh you know it's like you run in these these kind of industry circles and there's kind of like more industry awards and things like that but junos are so much more mainstream that it it did a lot for me the first time around so um i'm super super happy it's not just a tv show there's a lot more behind it um and what it means for people and often even when you look at junos and grammys that when people get nominated there's a certain profile that comes from it. And if you win, people line up to be like, hey, I want to work with you, Emma. You're the coolest. Totally. It's like a stamp of approval. And it's really hard to, um, you know, get on board with that, too. Because I think a lot of the times when you're not nominated and stuff, and for years, I was like, oh, what do awards mean, really, right? Like, they're not, they don't mean anything. It's a group of people who decide if you're good or not. But you know, it does actually give you this stamp that sort of validates you to people, to, to other yeah. artists, yeah. you know, the public. So yeah. it's, it's helpful. Now you've been doing this for really your whole life, ever since you were a young teenager. This is really just sort of forwarded into your professional life after that, a long list of all the things. What's your, so you did mention before we got started here, you're going to have a movie coming up later that you're working on. Um, you've done a whole long list of music videos Tegan and Sarah, Mariana's Trench, Dear Rouge, Megan Patrick, Brett Kissel. Um, the, the list goes on and on and on. And um, those are pretty prominent folks. And so here you are just creating more video things. Is there is there something about it that is a common thread for you and all of it that you love? Like, how does this work? Yeah, I mean, like directing specifically uh, is something I just, I think I always was, compelled to do it's like storytelling it's it's I I write as well too so I think that that's kind of a big part of it it's all a form of storytelling and music videos are just like one of the most freeing like the the rock and roll aspect to it is really great for me because it is like there's not a lot of rules to music videos at all so you're really able to do extremely creative stuff and I think that you see from music videos trends get set into like commercials into tv shows you see stuff sort of trickle down um through the rest of pop culture a lot of that gets started in music videos so um they're really cool uh art meets commerce type crossover 
um, form of media that I enjoy um, that really, you know, leads into filmmaking on a bigger scale, like our features and, and TV shows and things like that, which is the ultimate goal. You like to be the boss, really. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I'm like, a, I'm a Leo. I'm all about, like, you know, being the center of attention and, and being the boss. I can't help it. Uh, but, you know, that's okay. You can, you can talk to my boyfriend after this and he'll tell you all the all yeah. the grievances of living with me. <laughs> You'll give us the inside scoop. That sounds like a fun conversation to have. Yeah. Um, Northwoods is the uh, feature film that you've also got sort of cooking in the background just to give that one full credit. So mm-hmm. here, here we are. Uh, how do you, how do you create this? I mean, do you sit down with the pen and paper and go, Ooh, I know what would look cool. I mean, it, it really is to me. I mean, I write, but I paint a picture and a, there's a feeling and then I write it you're creating a whole new image thing and then you're expecting someone else to fulfill this image thing. So how do you get there? Like, do you just get so high? It's amazing. Like, I don't know how you would even start. Sometimes, sometimes it, it totally depends. Like it's one of those things I think I really believe, or I felt at least with myself that creativity is a muscle. And I feel like if I'm stepping away from it for a long period of time, it's a lot harder, but if I'm kind of like, cramming ideas out every single day it starts to get stronger and you just get a little bit better at at, at understanding for music videos specifically like what what's going to be needed for that and uh and then i tend to get on trends as well too of stuff that i'm into for a while i'll be, I'll be really into a certain style or something like that and chase it for a couple of months and then i'll be like oh i'm over it on to yeah. the next type of thing so yeah it depends, but it's a, it's a tough practice. And sometimes the ideas don't come. And with something like video directing, you're expected to come up with those ideas. That's your, like your job. And it's, it can be a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of pressure at times. Yeah, I bet. Um, how many projects do you do in a year? Because I would imagine that these things take so much time. It's not like you're Monday, I'm doing this video and Tuesday, I'm doing this video. Is, uh, is that part of that sort of seasons of trends and ideas thing kind of like for me it would be like i eat salad now but then uh, you know a week later i'm like i'm sick of salad yeah i mean it's 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 kind of that's a balance too like i was i was saying before we got on doing a little bit of more commercials or something for a little bit of time and then i'll go back to music videos so i can keep things fresh and uh i've been slowing down a little because we've been working on getting this feature um which we hope to shoot uh, I guess November. So we'll be, I'm working toward that. So I've slowed down on videos a little bit, but I mean, in previous years, I was doing as much as like two videos a month. Um, so it was, you know, I'd, I'd go two weeks on set and then, or and they're only one day. So it would be like a week of lead up a shoot day and then kind of wrapping things in posts in the background as we prep for the next one. And, and so it could easily be 24 a year. Um, in a, in those really busy years when I was really jamming up the videos, which is wow. a lot. Yeah. See earlier comments about what boyfriend thinks of all this for the working that much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, is there, is there a favorite that, you know, of people you've worked with where you're just like, you know, who I just would love to work with again. Is there anybody that hits you, um, right there that you're just in your bones? Like, yeah, we need to do more. I mean, there's a couple that I, I just love that, you know, are my favorites. I mean, Mother Mother was my first nomination and I love them as a band. I always have. They're kind of weird um, and they've been blowing up lately with their TikToks and things like that too. But also, I mean, like Jesse, Jesse Reyes really is one of those once in a lifetime artists. She's one of the most genuine, true artists um, I've had the pleasure of working with. And then Tegan and Sarah specifically as well too. I'm, I've been a fan of theirs for a really, really long time. Like before I ever got to work with them. And we'd done one project before this last music video that was kind of like a short film that featured some of their music. And um, and they're they're just great people. I really respect what they do as well. They have a Tegan and Sarah Foundation, which helps all sorts of people, specifically queer youth. And, and they just are good hearted, wonderful people people who are representing Canada to on the world stage um, very well, I think. Yeah. Well, and wholly down to earth people like any conversation with those uh, two women is just like, they're so cool. They're so cool. cool, They're like, if you meet them, you're just like, Oh my God, you just, 
exude coolness. It's, yeah. it's a magic thing. But still grounded, right? Like that's the cool mm-hmm. part. I love those. I love those kinds of people in life. And that's just not, you know, famous people. We get to meet those people in the street too, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, in all of this, I mean, Jesse Reyes, wow, what success. Um, the song, which by the way, uh, the song is Dynamite 2. We'll play it when we're done here. No one's in the room. And I, I this is curious for me how you create just from this place. I, um, do you always have the notepad around? I mean, we have a lot of people that <laughs> listen to the always. shift that, yeah, right? That, yeah. that say that, you know, they write songs and whatever, and you're sitting around with your friends or take a weekend off to go hang out and you've got your notepad with you and someone says that one snippet of a, a sentence, you're like, whoa, that's it. And you write, like, how does it work? I, I guess I don't even understand how you even picture this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, like, sort of back burner a lot of ideas as I hear them throughout the week. I'll be like, okay, cool, that's something, that's something. So I'll have notebooks and notes and stuff to just keep in place. But music videos specifically, like this Jesse Reyes song, is, the video is very much dedicated, like, it's literal visuals to the lyrics so uh that one it's not like you can even prepare you just have to hear the song and then you sort of get the ideas and this one specifically i um had my friend peter huang who's jesse's creative director and actually does a lot of her uh, music videos as well he's a talented director too he put me up for this job because he knew a little bit about my background and jesse and i had a lot of shared experiences actually because we both grew up in the christian church and uh had sort of a falling out or a lot of like conflict within that, which is what the song is about, which is incredibly personal. And it was a really nice pairing where I felt like I could talk to her on this level about what she had come to the song to write it about. You know, she'd written it about this like complex, you know, belief in God that she'd come to, you know, and separating God from religion. So it was, it was a heavy subject matter to take on for sure. And not something that I would have come up with if that song hadn't existed. With your experience going through, like you sort of said, something similar is, do you come out of that freed yourself around that old storyline of the things that you were raised with or told or told to be raised with or however that lands, you come out of that going, you know what? I am free of thanks to that. You know, is there anything that personally that you came out of it with where you're like, huh, that needed to happen for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's those stories too with um, where it just feels cathartic to to first of all, it felt very cathartic to have that song written too in the world. And I was like, wow, I really relate to that. And you know, if you're talking about loving music and stuff, that's music at its best, right? You can feel heard or, or like a shared human experience is is put into the world, and that was a specific experience that really spoke to me. So. Um, Connecting with that and then being involved in creating a, a visual for that was, it was just, it really felt cathartic. It really felt rewarding. Um, and I, I like doing a lot of different types of videos and sometimes they're just super fun, but it's a rare and nice occasion, like with this Jesse one where you can personally connect. Do you think you ever would reverse engineer it? Take your visual creating brain, take the visual and reverse engineer a song out of it and give it to one of your um, coworkers? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I've done like short films and things that are kind of like that where I'll have, I'll create the visuals and then I'll have a composer score it. So it's kind it would be similar ish. Um, I wish I had, I, yeah, I wish I had musical skill. I just don't. I played, I played trumpet all through high school band. That was it. And, um, (laughs) yeah, I've actually got to play, uh, professionally on a few, um, albums since not just like out of sort of pity, there's a Mary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on a I'm on a Mary in this Trench album under the name Hot Lips Higgins. You can see my credit. I played a couple trumpet notes, um, nice. and uh, another album for the Darcy's as well. I got a, a single credit for that. So I'm like Hot Lips Higgins. You might not live that one down. Yeah, that's your oh, trumpet yeah. name. That's um, amazing. But that's well, hey. that's the extent of my musical abilities, really, which is unfortunate because I love music. I'm a huge fan of it. I'm just not a great performer, and I have no rhythm, unfortunately. Well, it's just, this is cool stuff. I find that the way that you look at, I guess, um, the way you see it, 
that's what I really wanted to acknowledge in this. The fact that you can take it and create from it um, to a whole new level of storytelling is really cool to me. And not only that, there's technology, there's technique, there's the directing part, there's the bossy Leo part. Um, there's all of these pieces of the puzzle. And the fact that you can create that and make it live, like if this is a legacy piece, you have to understand, Emmett, like this is a legacy piece that's going to live forever in today's world on the internet. Yeah. Like no pressure here, but this is your whole legacy is going to live on forever. There's going to be a generation that's going to look back and say, hey, remember when this happened and look back at your work so many years later. Well, that's, that's, yes, it's a little bit terrifying to think about, you know, when you're, when you're creating something to feel like, oh, this is going to be my legacy, but also that's what's cool about music videos. And I'm sure everyone listening and yourself also would have that music video that they can think of in their mind that they saw when they were like a teenager and they were just like, whoa, like those visuals. Like for me, it was, there was like some red hot chili pepper videos. I remember they had some crazy videos at the time. I was like, holy, like that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, And it just stuck. It stuck in my brain and like, you know, for years to come. And it was like um, awakening for me. So that's it. That's an, I love the idea of getting to be a part of something like that for, you know, like a 13 year old out there right now. But then there's the videos of people wearing that Puffy did with uh, shiny, glittery suits. Not glittery, but like metallic, shiny suits dancing in front of a white Bentley that were just was just an era where everybody went, oh, I oh, guess that happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. And music videos have their, like, you know, they're, they're weird and dark sides. There's also, you know, too, it's you can talk about, like, this Britney Spears documentary or something, too, that's come out as well and, like, how we portrayed women pop stars over the years and, and uh, culturally the moments that maybe aren't holding up over time um, mm-hmm. as much with music videos. So it's interesting to look back at some stuff and, and think on those, those things. Yeah. Wow. And talk about an impact of representing people. You get to do that every day. So I, I wish you the best. Really cool stuff. Congratulations on the nomination. Look forward to hearing um, the way that all of this plays out. 2021 Juno Award for Music Video of the Year uh, with Jesse Reyes. Uh, this is a Hot Lips Higgins. <laughs> hey, Emma Higgins. Uh, amazing work. Thank you so much for sharing the time. Thank you. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. All right, Fish. How you doing, brother? Doing well. How about yourself? Good. You cooking down there in California or uh, are things all right? No, it's still it's still not too hot. It's, it's pretty tolerable down here so far. So what is not too hot right now in California? Just to be clear. Just mid 80s. Well, Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. I'll have to do the. Right. I'd have to do the conversion. <laughs> uh, Mid eighties. What's that? Twenty four. Yeah, yeah. Twenty four, twenty five. All right, that's all right. It's nice, hey. Yeah. What? Really Come on, Google machine. Speaking of machines, um, convert. See, I'm not very good with the the temperature stuff. Right. Eighty degrees Fahrenheit to Celsius. Thank you, Google. Twenty six. That's pretty warm. That's like a good summer day in Canada. And you're like, meh, it's not bad. It's it's All not right. bad because in the summer it gets about 40, 42, 43. Sheesh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, that's good. Um, we were uh, we were talking um, previously about machines. We were sharing on the shift about machines. And you have a piece at worldofweirdthings.com, which you can check out the blog there, the podcast, and more. Uh, Big Fish writes this article. And it is weird, as is Greg. Why humans and machines may have no choice but to merge. Now, this sounds very Hollywood there, Mr. California. What's going on? Well, it it does sound very Hollywood, but actually, and it's actually because it sounds Hollywood that it may be inevitable. This is not so much a piece about the fact that there's some sort of a destiny that will pull us in a certain direction. But it's about the idea of self-fulfilling prophecies because there are things that we say are just bound to happen 
we encourage a lot of research and a lot of work and a lot of um, uh, and a lot of effort into actually making them happen. So that's why I think it's entirely possible we've basically talked ourselves into at one point becoming cyborgs, or at least a significant percentage of the population becoming cyborgs. And this is not a thing that's going to happen now. This is going to, you know, something that's that's going to happen centuries into the future, and it's going to be a long, slow, complicated process. But before we get to that, I wanted to look through what technology do we actually have on hand? And based on our current understanding of what will need to happen for that, how far along are we? Like, what do we actually have in terms of this technology and where it's headed? Many people would say titanium hips and knees is probably where we're at. Actually, we are a lot further than that. A lot. That's scary. That's not good. Yes. Okay, great that, talking well, to you. Moving along. I don't want to talk about this. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. No. no. But seriously, we actually have, I think the, so I think the most important piece of technology that we have is, yes, we have artificial joints and that's great and all, but the artificial joints at this point are temporary. We are working on making them better and we're going to need to work on making them better. But we do have some technology that does things like interface with your brain and allows people who have lost the ability to speak because of trauma, because of stroke, because of, uh, of other health issues, uh, it can actually interface with their speech motor cortex and turn their thoughts into speech. We mm. also have discovered the ability to actually keep brains alive outside of bodies for a disturbingly long amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're not exactly sure where to go with that research because it's starting to get into some very, very interesting territory, but it's very difficult not to keep mining it because the benefits are so incredible. Like if you can keep someone's mind alive while you repair their body that can't actually keep their mind alive by by itself, you could save someone who today medical science would say, sorry, there's nothing we can do. We can also use these kinds of brains that we're keeping alive for research into how to treat neurological diseases and how to treat uh, brain tumors and how to treat Alzheimer's, things of that nature. So there's enormous benefit in advancing these technologies and in making them more resilient and more long-term and more self-sufficient and um, more easily deployable and more widely available. But that starts prompting the questions of, well, if we can do that to people who need it in Uh, trauma cases in the emergency room to save their lives, what can we do when this technology is reliable enough to use on healthy people? How how far can we push it? Okay, so I'm going to rewind back to the thing where you just said we keep people's brains alive. Well, so far we've done it with pigs and mice because humans gets a little bit complicated. So actually, Back in the day, um, I, I, I there was I did a segment on the show, and there was an article about an experiment where uh, pig brains were kept alive in a machine called the BrainX. The names scientists are not great with names. I'm I'm sorry. I, I know a lot of scientists. I respect them, but you're not great with names, guys. Um, so there's a machine <laughs> called BrainX that actually kept their uh, kept these pig brains alive, and they thought, okay, well. These pigs have been deceased for hours. They were slaughtered for meat. We'll put them in this machine and they'll be alive for like an hour or two. And we'll be able to test test and see if we can use them to research how to cross the blood-brain barrier to treat certain neurogenitive diseases and maybe even brain cancers. Hmm. But surprise, surprise, they were around. They they kept them alive for six hours. And they basically thought, well, if we, uh, according to our data, if we actually allow them to fully like we don't keep pumping suppressants for neural activity into them they might actually start reviving so we better shut this down right now Hmm. and then there was a subsequent experiment after that um, with mouse brains in an even simpler uh, device an even more straightforward device that was able to keep them alive for 25 days so it seems like we can actually do a lot of very interesting things with that now that said, if you take like a human brain and you put it in this machine and you kind of let it revive, first of all, we don't know what happens. It could be something could go terribly wrong. So we're not really uh, in, a, in a rush to start these experiments. But let's say everything goes okay. You have a human brain basically in the jar, reanimated. 
you need to start hooking it up to machinery in order for it to interact and communicate with the outside world. And you are actually going to need to bring in some biological things with it. Uh, the microbiome has to make its way in because that's very important in regulating moods and it's very important in regulating certain bodily processes because, you know, we did not, uh, I, I remember we talked a, a while back, you did not evolve on your own. You evolved with a, a lot of bacteria in your body that are your partners right. and symbiotes. So some of that oh. has to come along. Your endocrine system has to come along. Your immune system or parts of your immune system have, have to come along. But then after that, you can start getting really weird. You can start using um, a lot of sensors that hook up to everything and interact with machinery. You can customize a new mechanical body for yourself. You know, kind of if all of this really works out the way that we think it could, uh, sky's kind of the limit and, and some really weird stuff can be accomplished in maybe, you know, next 50, 70, 100 years. So that really gets me with, uh, I guess I find that pretty grounding to show how many millions of things, billions of things need to go right for life to happen properly when you say that. Yes, they can keep a brain alive, but it needs bacteria. It needs all of these different things, right? So like there's, there are so many things that have to go right along the way. Um, it must be incredibly difficult. It, it, I find that part particularly grounding. Now, in your article, Greg Fish, you you did you did say that when you turn a hundred, you got some plans here. So tell us that story. Well, I it's a joke that that started a while ago where um, my wife would keep asking, "Well, what are you going to do for your retirement? What are you going to do for your retirement?" Because she's a teacher, she you know has a retirement fund, and I'm like the 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 cowboy engineer just doing whatever. And I'm saying, well, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to retire. She says, well, what, what, you know, what happens if you turn a hundred? I say, well, when I'm going to be a hundred, I don't know. I'll put my brain in the jar and uh, retire on Mars. And that was supposed to be a Futurama joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started reading about these studies with the brains and I, was, and I went, well, actually, sweetheart, remember when I said the whole thing about, you know, retiring on Mars as a brain in the jar? I actually may have not been kidding. <laughs> and how did that go over? Uh, she said, uh, "She said I have to bring her along because she has some plans and some custom designs she'd like to try." It's it's a it's a very interesting <laughs> relationship that we have. Let's just put it this way: she's fair enough. I'm, I'm the I'm I'm the weirdo of I'm the I'm the tech weirdo of the household, and she just kind of goes along with it. She's just she's right there for it. Sounds incredibly patient. Um. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, like some people talk about burial plots. You're talking about a jar for your brain. Okay, so where does this go? Merging the humans and keeping the brains alive. Is this what you're talking about? About, you know, are we eventually going to just frankly become the robots and live inside the robot? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, pretty much. And the reason why I'm thinking about that is, you know, consider that the space program. The reason why we have the space program is because in the late 19th century, a lot of thinkers and writers and creators were very obsessed with the idea of going to space, using all this new technology, this new industrial machinery that we've designed to go into space to explore what's what's outside of the Earth. It was a constant cultural drumbeat. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we find ourselves with designers, uh, Werner von Braun and, and Karolov in the Soviet Union in the United States saying, we instead of trying to just launch ICBMs at each other and lob nukes at each other, we should go to space because look at all the stuff that we can actually do straight out of sci-fi, capture the imagination of the generals and the politicians who are responsible for it. And next thing you know, we have humans on the moon and space stations where people are staying for months or, or years at a time. And I think mm-hmm. it's kind of it's kind of going the same direction with us becoming cyborgs because we have been talking about it since like the 60s. And funny enough, there's actually an article in from 1963 in Popular Science where two doctors imagined what a cyborg exploring the moon would look like, and it is it is one of the funniest examples of techno babble that I have ever seen. Nothing in that picture makes. <laughs> sense at all Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. looking at it kind of inspired me to start thinking about well knowing what we know now 
and knowing what I know now, what how could we actually design it? How could we actually like make this work? What would it actually look like? So as a result, you know, uh, this article is like one of the results of it, and I, I may be working on a couple other things stemming from that direction to be revealed later. Do you think that the, like, this is like design your own body sort of mech warrior kind of thing happening here? Like how, like, or is it Why like not? all of a sudden you want to be, you know, you want to be the robot with boobs? Give her. Sure. I mean, why not? At that point, you you can have that ability. And if you're going to have that ability, you're going to use it. People are going to do all sorts of crazy stuff in this regard. I, I can't see a reason why not. I can, Although I can absolutely see that it will be possible, so people will do it. But I also see there's going to be there are going to be people who are going to be very uncomfortable with this and very scared of this, and they're going to push back, and there's going to be regulations, and there's going to be a back and forth about what we're going to be able to do. You're going to have a period that's going to be like this wild west, and people are exploring what can be done. There's going to be a lag where people don't even imagine some of the things that are possible. They're going to see what's happening and going to go, no, 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 no. We have to push back on this. There's going to be tug of wars. It's going to be a very interesting and fascinating time uh, because, I mean, take a look at what's happening now. The amount of change that we have seen in the last 70 years within the lifetime of a lot of people who are actually like in leadership and in power and a lot of and, and in charge of a lot of things in this world, they have not caught up at all and are taken by surprise every time something new pops up. So can you imagine what technology like this would do in the next 70 to 100 years? So this takes me to that TV show, Altered Carbon. Um, so either you're going to become a Roomba or like a mega robot or Altered Carbon is a TV show where basically your soul was in a chip and you could get yourself a new body and the rich people could just go take bodies from basically the poor people take the body and you put your chip in the neck and then that's you now. And if you wanted to grow a new body as you got older, you just took the chip out of the old one, put it in the new one, flushed away the old body. So it, like, is, is that the kind of stuff that you're thinking about? Not quite. It would still be a lot more complicated and a lot more involved. I, you would never be able to get your brain on a chip. There's a lot of things that 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 have to happen. Like your brain is not going to be something you would be ever be able to discard or download or compress. It's your brain. Your brain is you. That's that's all there's to it. And and funny enough, you know, when World of Weird Things was starting out a while ago, this is the kind of stuff that that it was like famous for trying to. Um, trying to fact check these kinds of claims and say, okay, we can do some amazing stuff, but some of these things are just not possible. Now, at the same time, it could be possible that there's this core that is you, which is your brain, some of the systems that we talked about, some of the organic uh, tissues that we talked about, some of the bacteria that we would want to include. And that core could be moved between bodies or and those bodies could have appendages, but it wouldn't be something as simple as like, you know, you can pop a chip into anywhere. And it would all have to be mechanical. It's not going to be, it, it would be a lot more complicated than that. Okay. So tell me what yours would be then. Greg Fish. Greg Fish is 100. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> oh, Happy boy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Greg. You're 100. Now it's time for your brain in a jar. What's your robot? What do you become? Uh, well, I definitely want something that has tentacles. Te you said tentacles? Yeah, something that okay. has like robotic tentacles. I, I, I think having sure extra you... limbs would be would be super didn't, useful. Didn't want to misunderstand that one. Um, right. Okay. I don't think those would be possible for a while. That that well, technology be... might be a little bit more complicated in that particular scenario. But no, something <laughs> with like additional limbs would be really cool. Something. That'd be handy. Um, yeah, something where I could integrate into a bigger machine would be really mm -hmm. cool. Um, I think I would just get, I would just try a whole bunch of different things until I settle on a design. I think the core design would still be relatively humanoid because I don't know how much the body map could change. 
Mm -hmm. Um, we know that it can change a lot. We just don't know the limits, but I would definitely want to start testing the limits. That would be my, that would be my first experiment as, as this living brain in the jar. Would you change anything like bigger, taller, stronger? Like you still a two legged robot with this extra tentacle arm? Like I would probably start with that and see where that goes, you know, start, start adding in more limbs, maybe have something that's a little bit more like a, uh, like a arachnid or insectoid chassis just see for fun you know is that gonna is that gonna improve things yeah you know jetpack is a must jetpack is an absolute must uh the only concern that i would have is living arrangements because with a different body type you need different different arrangements for how you're actually going to live and and move around and then remember you're going to have to sleep because no matter how much of a brain in the jar you are your brain still has to basically clear its cache. Right. So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to sleep and you're probably gonna have to, you know, still reserve six, seven hours a day minimum, to, you know, to take a nice long snooze, clear out that buffer and, you know, get ready for another day of brain in the jarring. I can um uh the brain in the jarro. I um it would be really cool to have some freaking laser beams. I think that'd be all right. A good place to start, right? And, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that'd be all right. I mean, I'd start there. And I think I would also start with, if I was going to be a robot, I would also add in cup holder. I mean, because how many times, like, you, you're looking for a whole new tentacle. I'm going cup holder. Like, I want a cup holder built in just, you know, for the coffee or, or whatever. My morning With a hot plate, right? Ooh, a warming cup holder. Yeah. See, I see where you're Come going. Come on, you're go crazy. Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. If you could become any robot, what robot would you become? Check out worldofweirdthings.com. Greg Fish, thanks very much, brother. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And if you have ideas for what kind of robot you want to be, I want to hear them. Greg A. Fish on Twitter. Message me. Tell me all about it. I, I desperately want to know now. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.